John chapter 1, verse 35. It's um, page... 750 in the Red Pew Bible, and in the other one it is uh, 1032. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are son, are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite, in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still, still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Thank you, Peter, for the warm welcome. And uh, as Peter has said, Dawn and I have uh, only recent uh, additions to Port Macquarie. We moved here in September and um, we're still connecting and uh, fitting with the, with the people. We uh, know Port fairly well because we came down here with holidays with our children for many years. Um, but uh, it's great to be here and uh, I don't know whether we're, we're here in retirement or semi-retirement or what we're doing. But anyway, we're here. And they tell us we've only got 24 years and nine months to go and we'll become accepted in the community. So that's pretty good. But as we open the passage this morning, uh, let's ask for God's help and let's pray. Father God, we thank you that it's by your sovereign grace you have given us your word. We thank you that your word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And as we gather together as your children today, Father, we, we pray that you'll open the eyes of our hearts to hear your message to us today. Lord, your word is, is powerful. It's, uh, it's like a two-edged sword. It divides between joint and marrow and soul and spirit. And we thank you for it. And we pray this morning that you'll help us all to 
to hear the message that you have for us today, to understand the message, and Lord, to be able to apply it in our lives for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Tomorrow will be an important day for many people. It's the 18th of January 2010 and you're going to say, what's so important about that? Well, it's the deadline for nominations for the 2009 Australian of the Year. The question on many lips is who has been the first among us, the boldest, the most imaginative, the bravest, the most creative, the most inspiring? Who is it? Who is it going to be? Was it Elizabeth Blackburn, the Australia's first female Nobel Prize winner? Perhaps the Treasury Secretary, Ken Henry, who steered our country out of a recession? Maybe it was Mark Donaldson, the Aussie trooper who was awarded the VC for his gallantry in Afghanistan. Virginia Makesner, she must be a contender, the neurosurgeon who led the surgical team to separate the fused brains of those little twin girls, Krishna and Trishna. She would have to be a contender, wouldn't she? What about Ricky Ponting? Lost the ashes to England, but has been hailed as the most successful cricket captain and player in history. I'm sure I've only picked a few. I'm sure you can think of many others who would emerge as the 2009 Australian of the Year. These folk have done wonderful, sometimes amazing feats in their chosen field during the year. And we all admire them for their contribution to the advancement of our country. We applaud them for being the, the best and the brightest within our communities. But as we do so, we are reminded that in God's book there will be no nominations to be considered. There will be no winner to be announced in next Saturday's Weekend Australian. There is no one person who stands head and shoulders above the others. In the Lamb's Book of Life, all the disciples of our Lord Jesus will receive the crown. In the message that Ian brought to us last week, he clarified very, very much the relationship between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Pointed out that, Jesus, that John was the witness to the Messiah, the herald to announce the coming of the Saviour of the world the one for whom the Jewish people had been waiting, the one whom the whole of the Old Testament pointed to, the one who is to be Saviour and Lord. And John makes it crystal clear that Jesus is God's chosen one, the anointed one, and the one on whom his spirit descended and remains. The entire section of chapter 1 of John's Gospel after the prologue also gives us some practical pointers on the nature of discipleship. Disciples are what Jesus calls, as we discuss with the children, his followers, his learners. People who are called and committed to world-changing lives as they follow their Saviour and Lord. Once again, last week, we saw that the first aspect of discipleship 
is that disciples must know their Lord. This morning we're looking at the passage we had read to us, verses 35 to the end of the chapter. And in this passage we will explore the other three aspects of discipleship. Please have your Bibles open to the passage. I can't remember the page number, but it's um, John chapter 1, verse 35. And also there is a sermon outline in the centre of your service sheet, which you might like to follow me with. So the three, the three uh, aspects of discipleship we're going to explore today is disciples follow Jesus, disciples bring others to Jesus, and disciples live under Jesus' authority. Let's read together verses 35 to 39. The next day John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. If you can picture the scene here, probably in one of the villages, maybe sort of out in the desert, but John the Baptist was talking to his disciples as he did day after day and talking to them and encouraging them at the very time that Jesus walked past. This happened the day before that Ian discussed with us last week in verse 29. That happened the same thing, same scenario. scenario. And as Jesus walked past, John said, Look, the Lamb of God. Now this was important. It was a critical title that John had given to the Lord Jesus, Lamb of God. Because these, these guys were steeped in the knowledge of the Old Testament. And they were steeped in the knowledge of the sacrificial system and the sacrifices of perfect lambs in the temple. Maybe also they had have remembered um, back in Genesis 22, they, Abraham's story, when God told Abraham to take his son, his one and only son, after all those years, to take him up Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. Remember the story? Abraham and Isaac trudging up the mountain. Isaac said to Abraham, Dad, the wood's here, the fire's here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham's words to him is, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the disciples of John would have remembered that. They would have also remembered, in addition to the sacrificial system in the temple, they would have also remembered the, the lamb that was led to the slaughter for the, for the sins of God's people, spoken so strongly by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. And of course, they would certainly have remembered from their forefathers the Passover lamb. Remember, Moses was called to uh, go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to have the people of God released from slavery in Egypt. And of course, the way that they did that was indeed God said, take a perfect lamb, kill it, 
wipe the blood on the doorposts and the windowsills, go inside, get ready to go, eat it, every part of that animal, and you will be saved from slavery in Egypt. And that's in fact what happened, because the angel of death went over that night to kill the firstborn of every house, every barn, every field, except those that had the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorposts and the windowsills. The angel of death passed over those houses and the people of God were able to escape from Pharaoh's clutches. So these disciples would have remembered these stories. So the title Lamb of God for Jesus was particularly important to them, very much so. And so after hearing John's statement, look, the Lamb of God, or the previous day, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So by the Spirit of God, they turned and they followed Jesus. Jesus saw them following. He turned around and said, what do you want? Well, this, I think, probably would have put the, caught them off guard a bit. What do you want? Well, what do we say here? So um, they said the first thing that came to their mind. Oh, a Rabbi, where are you staying? So Jesus said, come and see. So they went and they spent the day with Jesus. That question is a of Jesus is a critical question. It's a question not only to those two disciples, it's a question to us today. What do you want? What do you want from Jesus? Do you want to just be sort of a member of uh, a Jesus club? What do you want? This week, think about that. Think about the issues. What do you want? Do you see in him your Lord and your Saviour? Do you see in him the only possible way of having a relationship with God? Do you see in him the only way that your rebellion against God, and we've all, we've all rebelled against him, can be forgiven? Do you see in Jesus the only way with a capital O, of experiencing true peace and true joy. So Jesus, they went to the house with Jesus and spent the day with him. And Jesus taught them. Remember in the prologue when Scott preached a couple of weeks ago and we talked about uh, John, the apostle who wrote the gospel, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's what Jesus would have been talking to them about, full of grace and truth. The truth of who God is, the truth of the fact that God has created them and every single person in his image for a relationship with him. And the truth that every single person, the two disciples of John and ourselves, has failed that relationship. The truth that we know from the Bible and from our own consciences that we have failed God. We've failed to honour him as God, to treat him as God. God is 100% holy and righteous and just. When we're at school, we have exams and tests and often the pass mark's 50% or 70% or 80%, but God's pass mark is 100%. And none of us is perfect. So Jesus would have explained that to them, that indeed the truth is that God has created you for a relationship, 
but you've blown it and you've separated yourself from God. But remember, Jesus also came full of grace and he explained, he would have explained to them the grace of God in himself, that God has provided a way out. God has provided a perfect sacrifice, a perfect lamb, who was to die on the crude wooden cross of physical death. Of course, we know we'll all die one day physically, but Jesus died a spiritual death. He was separated from his heavenly father in those hours. Remember in the blackness for three solid hours. It was black when Jesus died. And it was black because what was happening between the son and the father was private. Jesus suffered that spiritual death in our place and by our faith and trust in him we don't have to die spiritually in fact we don't so these are the things that um, Jesus would have explained to the two disciples that were following him it's interesting that Andrew and the other disciple uh, were not audibly called they were not sent but the Holy Spirit moved in their hearts when they heard he's the Lamb of God we have to follow him. Philip, on the other hand, you will see in verse 43, was audibly called by Jesus. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Now, as we've said with the children, we say today, and we all know it, don't we? Disciples are people who follow the Lord Jesus. That's a given, isn't it? I mean, we learnt that from Sunday school and we learn it continually all the time. We all know it. But how well do we sometimes know it? One of the great weaknesses of many churches is that they get folk involved in their religious club or their denomination or to follow a leader or to follow uh, the leader of their home group or the social club leader or whatever or the minister. The critical thing is we're called to follow Jesus. And being being a follower of Jesus is far more than just having your name on the role of the church turning up on Sundays. It is more than saying amen to the prayers and singing the songs to his name. True disciples of Jesus follow him, his ways, his example, his love and his grace with an effort to growing in a strong relationship with him, a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. And the question I think for all of us is, are we challenging people to be connected and remain connected to Jesus and to live their daily lives in the presence of their Lord? This is what life-changing, world-transforming discipleship is all about. Allegiance to our Lord. Not a church or a religious club or, or, or a minister or a style of worship or this or that. Follow the Lord Jesus. Unhindered devotion to him. The second point that we, second aspect of discipleship we consider this morning as we read verses 40 to 42. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. The first thing that Andrew did 
That was the most important, critical thing on his mind and his heart. Once again, picture the scene. Perhaps they're in one of the villages and he just left Jesus. His brother, Simon, was down on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, perhaps maybe mending his nets, perhaps filleting his fish. Um, perhaps he might have even been out in the sea fishing in his boat. But the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother. And he found him. And he said, we have found the Messiah. I mean, how good is that? Really? We've found the saviour of the world, the one that's going to save us from our sins, the one who God has promised to send us. And he brought him to Jesus. He brought him to Jesus. Andrew is well known in the New Testament for introducing people to Jesus. We don't read a lot about him in other places, but when we do read about him, He's introducing people to Jesus. And that's what we're called to do, to bring others to Jesus. But it's hard, isn't it? It's not easy. The gospel, in a sense, is an unbelievable message that is contrary to all natural inclinations. It is, isn't it? This man dying on a cross... Um, Contrary to all natural inclinations. I never forget a, um, a baptism service that I did in Gosford many years ago, and uh, the, the, the mother of the child that was being baptised was, um, uh, was an Italian lady, and she was a Catholic, and she'd come to faith in Christ, and she joined the church, and all her family were there. And there's little kids, and I'm in the middle of preaching a sermon, and there's this little, little kid down in the back, and he looked up, and he said, Look, Mum, there's no man on the cross. But you see, the important thing is, it's, it's hard, it's really hard, because we're trying to deliver this message to people who are dead and blind. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, once you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and we all were, and those without Christ are spiritually dead. So how do we do it? We can only do it by prayer and in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, people can only, the lights can only come on by when the Spirit moves in their hearts, to open their hearts and give them sight to their eyes. It's not a matter of recruiting a, a, a group of professional evangelists or running outreach programs all the time. I mean, we could walk around the streets of Port Macquarie with a sandwich board saying the end is nigh, uh, we could go to Settlement City and, and, and with a Bible and proclaim when I was ministering at, Goss, at um, Windsor, this was happening on a street corner every single day. A group of three or four people on a street corner uh, pre preaching the gospel which most people weren't even hearing. All people weren't even hearing. Well, do we build relationships with folk? Build relationships and gently bring them to the Lord in prayer and pray that the Spirit of God, the Spirit, will move in their hearts. And as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, when we are asked to give the reason for the hope that we have, that we're prepared to give people an answer, that Jesus is the sole source of the hope of this world. Hope is critical to all our lives. Someone once said, 
the doctors and the uh, psychologists said that the person can live for 40 days without food, for 12 days without sleep, for six days without water, for five minutes without oxygen. But how long can a person truly live without hope? Hope is the big thing and hope is the thing that everyone wants, everyone needs. Everyone is searching. The 4th century theologian Augustine said that God has placed a God-shaped hole in every person's heart. Only God will fit that hole. People try wealth and money and careers and exotic cars and speedboats and holidays, all sorts of things. But only God will fit that hole. People are searching. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that the statistics tell us that 85% of Christians come to a personal faith in the Lord by a trusted friend or someone close to them. Isn't this what the passage is telling us today? Look at um, Andrew. First thing he did was find his brother. And indeed, we look at uh, Nathan uh, Philip with Nathaniel, reading verses 45 to 46. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Come and see. In other words, check Jesus out for yourself. Friends, we must go and bring folk to Jesus. It's not an optional extra. It's not just for the ministers and the elders or the outreach committee or the specially gifted evangelists. It's for all of us. And it's tough. It is tough. Look at Moses, a great spiritual giant. Look at the trouble he had. We read it in Exodus chapters 3 and 4. God said, I want you, he spoke to him at the burning bush, I want you to go. I want you to speak to the king of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to have my people released. What did Moses say? Well, who am I? Who am I to do that? What will I say your name is? No, look, Lord, I can't do it. I'm not gifted. I'm not, I can't do it. Go, the Lord said, and I will go with you. So that's what he's saying to us today too. Go, and I will go with you. The Great Commission, he says the same. Go and baptise in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them everything I have told you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The third point about the third aspect of discipleship in our passage is the disciples live under Jesus' authority. We're to be followers, we're to go and bring others to him, but all in the name, of, in his name and his authority. Every aspect of our lives is under the authority of the one who has chosen us the one who's called us, the one who's justified us, the one who has redeemed us, every aspect. People say, oh, but I just have a secular job. Rubbish! There is no such thing as a secular job because every, every job we do should be done in the name and the authority of our Lord Jesus. And when we work as honest workers and as diligent and as conscientious people and, and be able to say a word in season to our workmates and clients or whoever we might be dealing with, it's a spiritual job. 
In verses 42 and 47 to the end, Jesus reminds us of an amazing authority, uh, of his amazing authority through a name change and a prophecy. I was going to say about a, a secular job and one thing that passed me by was, and I'll go back to that if I may, I read an article about uh, Christians in China only recently. And in fact, many, many bosses and workers, in particularly in the factories in Shanghai and Beijing, are looking for Christian workers because they're proven to be honest and diligent and conscientious. And they don't take a sickie here and there and they don't do these sorts of things. They're honest. And in fact, a lot of the bosses and employers are looking for Christian workers. So let's look at these, uh, these amazing authority. Name change in a prophecy. Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him searchingly and he saw a big, blustering, erratic fisherman. But he saw what he was to become. You are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Cephas is Aramaic for rock. Petros is Greek for rock. You will be the rock. So under Jesus' authority, this hardy fisherman is given a new name and a new role. And we all know that he became one of the foundation apostles of the church. And that's some authority, isn't it? And again, Nathaniel's encounter with Jesus highlights his authority. Nathaniel was dumbfounded after he blurted out, well, can anything good come from Nazareth? At that time, the Nazarenes were looked down upon. They were rejected. But read with me from verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you, that I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus knew Nathanael before he even met him. He saw him under the fig tree before Philip called him. Maybe he was praying, maybe he was reading, might have been snoozing. He knew him to be a true Israelite. Nothing false about him. And he knows every one of us also. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words before they're on our lips. He knows our hearts. And this was too much for Nathaniel. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In my translation of Jesus' next words is you ain't seen nothing yet. You will see greater things. I tell you this truth, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascend, ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Remember in Genesis 28, we had Jacob's ladder, had the ladder up to the vision of the ladder up to heaven with the angels going up and down. You won't need a ladder, you have me, you have Jesus. The angels will go up to heaven from me and come and return to me. I am the point of contact between heaven and earth. That's what he's saying. That's, that's it simplified. I am the intersection between God and man. 
Jesus alone brings us to God. Jesus alone brings God to us. Only Jesus can bridge that huge chasm between heaven and earth and between God and man. This morning we've talked about these three aspects of discipleship. Disciples follow Jesus, they bring others to Jesus and they live under Jesus' authority. Let me just wrap up. We're to follow Jesus, not some church or religious club, but follow me. Don't push pussyfoot around with your faith and its expression. Find others and bring them to me. And as Philip said to Nathaniel, this is what we must do with our people. Encourage others to come and see. The end of verse 46. That's what Philip said to Nathaniel. Come and see. Remember the story of Jesus with a Samaritan woman at the well? John chapter 4. Jesus, a Jew, talking to a Samaritan woman. Unheard of. Jesus was talking to her. He spoke about all her boyfriends. She dropped a bucket and raced into the village. She said, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Jesus himself in John chapter 7 and verse 37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Come is the great invitation of God's grace. And this is, I believe, how we encourage our friends and our neighbours. Come, we encourage them to come and see. Come and see the blood, the sweat, the tears on that crude wooden cross. Come and see the pain of the one hanging there for you. Come and see the passion of the one who gave his life in our place. Come and see the empty grave, the one that was so securely locked with guards and everything else. Come and see. It's empty. He's not there. He's risen. He's proven beyond all doubt his claims that your sins are forgiven. If even one of any of our sins is not forgiven, Jesus would not have risen from the grave. Come and see. Come and see the pierced hand of God touch the most common heart. Wipe away the flood of tears. Forgive the ugliest of sin. Come and see the hope that the people of God have. Come and see the rock that withstood all ages. The flame that persecutors and cynics and atheists and no hopers have tried to extinguish. Come and see the orphanages and the hospitals that have replaced crumbling ruins of war. Come and see the angry suddenly becoming full of joy. Come and see the guilty and the bitter. See them now standing tall. That's how we encourage our friends. Come and see. Come and see for yourself. Check him out and see the Saviour of the world, the Son of God and the Lord of the universe. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, we thank you once again for your word and the power of your word. We thank you for the message that you have brought to us today. And Lord, help us to, to, to really um, assess or look at the aspects of discipleship 
Help us, Lord, to be true followers, unhindered devotion to the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be, to, to, in the power of prayer and the Spirit, to be able to go and encourage our friends, our family, our neighbours to come and see the Saviour of the world. Amen.